Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Coming up on the show today, John Coates, professor at Harvard Law School and author of the new book, The Problem of Twelve, when a few financial institutions control everything. Uh, John, welcome to Bookstack. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And congratulations on the new book. So what is The Problem of Twelve? Well, in, in, in short, we're going through, again, a period in which economies of scale in finance are driving more and more of our economy into the control of a relatively small number, notional number 12 financial institutions that previously haven't played that role. So they're newcomers to this sort of thing. It's not the usual suspects banks and insurance companies. Instead, it's asset management companies. And the problem is it's sort of a double problem. It's a problem for democracy uh, when you get that much concentrated power over the economy. And we can talk about how to think about measuring that. And then the other side of the problem is it's a problem for these companies because they actually, at least one of the two types, really do a great deal of good things for ordinary investors, uh, ordinary Americans who want to save for retirement. But the political power they're getting is so great that I fear for their survival, at least in the form uh, that they've been framed in over the last 30 years. Yeah, I mean, that's the paradox at the heart of the book in many ways, that you have the outsized influence of these uh, these small groups, concentration of wealth in um, a, a small number of hands, and that threatens constitutional politics, you say. But on the other hand, there's the danger that the political response can also threaten the financial welfare of the country. So it's a, it's a real dilemma at the heart, uh, the heart of this study. I think that's right. It's, it's something that's um, not easily solved. If I had a solution, I probably would have titled the book something else. But it's, it's a, an ongoing challenge. Uh, I think the right response, maybe we'll come back to this later, but I'll just, let me just say it at the outset, is, is neither to squash these financial institutions in some dramatically uh, intrusive way, nor is it to just keep ignoring them. I think we have to find some in-between ground that probably involves uh, more disclosure, more engagement by them with the publics broadly understood, uh, and, and maybe some greater control of conflicts of interest uh, that they may face as a result of the power they have. Yeah, and it's, it's actually one of the really attractive things about this book, that, that it embraces the complexity, that it doesn't try to come up with simple solutions and, and slogans to deal with something that is quite complex. And and it has kind of underpinning it as well, this kind of much broader discussion, which is something I think that will feature uh, in the election next year too, that, as you say, capitalism, it, it creates health and wealth, I think is the, is the phrase that you use in the, uh, in the book. Uh, but it also does so in ways that often uh, breed unacceptable levels of uh, inequality in those very things. So there's the very narrow paradox that we talked about at the beginning, but there's also this much broader sense of paradox too. I, I think that's right. I tried to, to relate the, the specific uh, institutions that are now accumulating power to what I think are probably just enduring tensions between organizing um, a polity 
in a way that fragments power and, and provides everyone with an opportunity to participate in governance on the one hand with the, the very real way in which certain kinds of financial functions in a capitalist economy are probably best done uh, for everyone at, at very large scale uh, by large institutions. And, and those two things really are at war with one another. Um, as I say, we've, we've run into this before. Um, banks at the outset of the founding of the American Republic were viewed as a threat to the political system and they were greatly restrained, I think actually too restrained uh, from, a, from an economic perspective. Um, but that's precisely because their power was so great. Uh, the same kind of thing happened with insurance companies uh, about a century later. And I think we're now going to have to go through a similar kind of struggle to figure out exactly what to do with the two kinds of funds that, that, are, that are really driving the problem at the core of the book. I should say what they are, I suppose. I haven't said it yet. One type of fund is, is known as an index fund. Um, Vanguard is probably the most famous uh, a purveyor of these. BlackRock is another one. There are a couple of other major uh, groups that provide them, but they're really a very small number of index fund providers. And index funds are just very, very successful at managing other people's money at a very low cost. So they've been getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And every time they get bigger, they actually get better at what they do because they operate by um, providing very low cost services and the bigger they get, the lower the cost per dollar managed. And then that means they can cut their fees and that makes them more attractive. And that means people put more money in them so they get bigger and so on and so forth. So that's one type of, of asset management company that these funds now control anywhere from 25 to 30% of the stock of every single company that's listed on every stock exchange in the United States, which is an astounding concentration of control uh, that we've not seen ever really in, in U.S. history before. And it's relatively recent. It's something that's really only emerged in the last couple of decades. The other type of fund, uh, very briefly, uh, private equity funds, they get a lot more press from time to time, They're a little bit maybe better known in the political sphere. Um, they don't tend to control stock of public companies, of listed companies. They just buy whole companies uh, and take over whole uh, sectors of the economy. They've also been growing very rapidly over the last 20 years. And the biggest ones have been growing the fastest, again, because of economies of scale. So those are the two kinds of funds that, that I talk about in the book. And that's the, the, the new financial problem uh, that we're facing right now. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because although you are looking at this overall uh, system as a pro or situation, uh, as a problem, you do see differences between the two. One phrase that uh, really struck me in the introduction is where you talk about how index funds certainly private equity possibly uh, creates value within the system and then and that they're as important as the threat that they may have to democracy. That seems to me to be quite an important distinction that certainly and possibly between the two different kinds of funds. I, I, I was very mindful of the fact that the two kinds of funds do share some really deep commonalities. That's why I'm treating them together in the same book. They've been growing uh, in size and concentration over roughly the same period of time. And they both involve managing other people's money, as in the famous phrase by Louis Brandeis. But you're absolutely right. They, they function so differently that, that you can say some objective things about them uh, that are quite different. So for index funds, I don't think anyone really thinks they're all in 
bad or even neutral from an investing perspective, they're clearly a good thing. They uh, allow ordinary people to buy a diversified array, often the stock of thousands of companies and hold them for them in a safe way, uh, handle all the back office functions, tax filings, all of that, uh, and allow for diversification in retirement savings at an incredibly low cost. And they, they take away all the complexity that used to be associated with thinking about which company stock to buy or which broker to use or exactly how long to hold them or what happens if the company merges into another and now you've got another choice to make. What if uh, they pay big dividends and you have to use the cash? All of that's handled for you at an incredibly low cost, which is why they're so successful. And the, the amazing thing about them is that over the past 30 years, again, um, they've been able to outperform other types of investing um, funds, actively managed mutual funds, for example, hedge funds generally for, for wealthy people, um, even though they um, purposefully do not pick and choose stocks. They just buy all of the stocks in an index. It's like a very simple-minded way of investing. Turns out uh, it's so hard to do investing well that if you do that at very low cost, you can usually beat uh, investors who try to pick and choose. Now, there are some people who can do better than index funds. Warren Buffett probably does, uh, but most individual investors uh, can't. And, and and what's even more important, most individual investors not only can't do it themselves, they can't easily identify which investment professionals can beat the market net of the fees they charge you. And Warren Buffett's own advice to anybody is to put your money in an index fund. <laughs> Precisely. He's famous now, actually, since I wrote the book for uh, for giving LeBron James that advice. And LeBron is a fair amount of money, uh, but when, I don't know how they met each other. That would be an interesting story to, to run down if you're a journalist, but uh, they met each other apparently and LeBron asked him, how, how should I invest? And, and Buffett famously told him, put an index fund and, and apparently did. And LeBron has tripled his money eight years later, I think it was, uh, which is a pretty good return for the amount of money he had to invest. So that's index funds. And I'm I'm a fan, even though I worry about them. Uh, I worry about their power. I worry about the threat of the system to them, but I'm basically a financial fan. Private equity is a little harder to say anything about with any degree of confidence. And the reason is the whole industry is built on not disclosing anything to the world. So academics, researchers, analysts, other potential individuals who might think about investing in some way through private equity, you can't get public data to be able to evaluate them the way you can for index funds. So it's a closely fought case, but my read of the best academic literature that there is, um, including people who sort of like the private equity industry, the conclusion of all that research is we're still not sure. And the reason we're still not sure uh, is because the private equity funds only reveal certain information to their own investors, which are typically other funds like pension funds um, or endowments or sovereign wealth funds or the likes. And they never publish uh, even their returns. And even to their own investors, because they buy a whole company and run it for a while, there's not really a natural way to assess the risk that they're running with their ownership as you can for a public company where there's a stock price, which you can look at it all the time and use that to come up with the risk measure. And so private equity funds, even if you got return data you could trust, which again is not published, uh, you still don't have a good risk measure. And in order to understand whether investing is doing a good job all in, traditionally it's both risk and return. 
And if you put that level of uncertainty together, uh, most close observers, as I say, conclude we're not really sure whether they're actually able to beat uh, just investing in the stock market or investing to index funds. Um, and so there are plenty of individuals, to be clear, who make a lot of money through private equity. But those are the people who run the funds, not the people who invest in the funds. And, and to reiterate, you might think of private equity as sounding like private. It's just rich people with their money. Who cares? No, actually, it's pension funds. It's public, private, large investments made on millions of people's behalf, usually without their having any idea. And so it really is a, a matter of public concern how private equity does, and yet we can't really tell. Uh, and that's one of the themes of the book. And that's one of the ways in which I think private equity is, if anything, a, a more acute problem uh, for financial purposes. It's also a political problem because they're getting so big and they're controlling so many different uh, parts of the economy. As, as you show, there's this. This is not just a, an accident of the system. There's definitely a shadowy element to this. They're very often there proactive uh, in hiding uh, what they're doing with the companies that they control and the amounts of money that are being made. Yes, I mean the industry really has a significant component of regulatory evasion sounds like a, a, a bad word. I'll just say they're, they're structured around regulation and they're, and they have spent money to change regulation, uh, so that they can consistent with existing regulation, again, remain basically in the dark, uh, for voters certainly, and for even for most investors. So the typical retiree whose retirement savings are held in a pension plan without realizing it is invested through private equity in all kinds of companies. They're paying the private equity firm's fees without knowing that. Uh, and they're really not getting much of any good information to be able to tell whether either the investments are a good idea or whether, even if they are a good idea, whether the way the companies are being run actually is hurting that very same person in some other way, um, such as through layoffs or uh, changes in health benefits or go down the list of ways in which private equity can change the management of a company once they buy it. And, you know, this this is where the political implications of the book start to come through, because as you show, there's been a constant effort uh, by index funds, by private equity funds to skirt um, or lobby for changes in all kinds of things. You cite, uh, for example, employment, law, taxation, uh, even political activity. Uh, and so it's not difficult to then take the next step and see this as in some way a threat to democracy itself. You know, the basic deal that was struck in the Depression in the 30s, when many people wondered maybe socialism would be a good idea, the basic deal was we'll stick with capitalism, but we'll stick with it conditional on there being a great deal of transparency through a disclosure regime that the Securities and Exchange Commission stood up and basically applied to most large businesses. That deal has largely been eroded over time, um, and particularly by the private equity industry. You show in the book how, in many ways, the history is direct here, that historically these funds, which you, as you say, are, are something that are a late 20th century phenomena, um, are a direct financial response to, to the frameworks that had been imposed uh, earlier in the century during the New Deal. Yes. They, I mean, they, they were set up 
to, as I say, you know, evade is not really correct. Um, large and raise lots of money without triggering disclosure. That, that's the, that was the framework. And then they took lobbying dollars and threw them at the problem in the 90s and managed to get a relatively seemingly innocuous change in the securities law, which dramatically expanded their scope for growth. It used to be prior to 1996 that while they could be an active and meaningful part of financial capitalism, they were relatively constrained in size uh, by the way the laws were written. They got a change in 96, which basically allowed them to grow to, you know, as large as they want with as many investors as they want, as long as each individual investor is, is a fund or a sophisticated uh, institution. In theory, they are supposed to be sophisticated. Um, and so that was the, the seemingly modest tweak that then allowed them to take off in growth. And so 1996, they were, you know, like two or 3% of the overall economy today. They're like 15 or 20% of the overall economy and growing rapidly. If I, if I thought by the way, that we were like at the status quo and it would, we would remain here for a while, you know, it would be an interesting, important thing to know, but I wouldn't have written the book. The problem is they've been growing year after year for 25 years now at a rate that is three or four times faster than the economy. And there's no sign that they're slowing down. Um, if anything, I would say when we go through a period of high interest rates, as we are right now, that's kind of a challenge to the way both kinds of institutions function. But the biggest guys can manage through those challenges even better than other people. So I predict in another few years, the biggest are going to be even bigger and they're going to have an even greater share of the overall economy. Do you think that the fact that, you know, there's been high inflation recently, there's the falling public trust in businesses, in globalization and this kind of thing, is that part of the reason why these questions are on the agenda now, that in kind of better times, we tend to not worry so much about these things? I, I do think that both economic struggles and the progressive peeling away of the New Deal deal, um, the deal that was embedded in the New Deal that's gone on since 1970, both of those things are contributing to making the politicization of these, these asset managers um, uh, in our economy more threatening and more predictable. Um, if you went, you know, again, there used to be labor unions and they would strongly control companies no matter who owned them. They're largely, you know, in decline. They've had a little bit of success just in the last year, year and a half, but that only illustrates, I would say, the point, which is that the backdrop is an overall an economy in which labor is really greatly weakened relative to the past. Um, the role of antitrust law, another way in which traditionally large businesses were controlled through government action when they got too much power and concentration, that law greatly got weakened and thinned out from roughly 1980 on uh, as a result of very concerted um, efforts by the business lobbies, including private equity. Um, and so the, the moment we're in right now, yes, you're right. There's economic challenges. There are always economic challenges. They come and go. We have a business cycle. You know, globalization has its, has its uh, ebbs and flows. You know, over a 10 or 15 year period, you can almost always predict some moment where the economy will feel shaky and difficult. I think the bigger thing that's more durable has been this peeling away of elements of the New Deal that, that mean 
that when I teach these subjects to my younger students, anybody under the age of 30, certainly, um, they tend to think that the ordinary political sphere is so broken. They're really interested in corporate governance. And it's like, it used to be a boring topic. I couldn't get young people to be interested in it. Now they see these institutions, in particular, both index funds and private equity funds as levers for affecting change in the world. And they're right to notice that they have outsized influence of a kind that would not have been true again in 1965. And it's interesting that that question about them being levers for change. I mean, one of the points that you make is that, you know, actually a lot of the, particularly the private equity funds are a lot more pluralistic and varied uh, in terms of their political activities than we might think. But I, I was struck that I think it was in the Financial Times last week, there was a report saying that, you know, actually, uh, a lot of funds are rowing back on this kind of activity now because they're losing money. And I guess there's a kind of empiricism that is incontrovertible uh, in finance that ultimately, uh, whatever you're doing, you can't say that it's a good investment if it's losing you money. Yeah. On the private equity side, um, again, the, the interest rate that we're facing right now make traditional private equity. I mean, the basic model of private equity is that they take other people's equity in a private equity fund, basically stock investments, and then they couple it with debt and they borrow a lot. And they borrow a lot from, um, used to be banks in the bond market. These days it's increasingly um, and somewhat in tension with their careful management. Um, their own credit funds. So private equity not only has private equity, but it also has private uh, debt in their funds. And so there's obvious risks of conflicts of interest or at least some collusion. The interest rate environment right now makes that borrowing harder. And so there are real headwinds that are facing the industry as a whole. So you might think my book is worrying about something that's going to diminish. But just to revert to what I said a minute ago, I don't really think that's true. I actually think what it's going to do is shake out the, the mid-sized and smaller private equity funds. They're going to not survive this very well. They're going to have a tendency to either shut down or merge with bigger players. The big guys, because they run credit funds, are going to have access to credit and to capital to manage through the interest rate environment um, over the next two, three years, however long it takes before inflation is spurred under control. And I think, again, in another five years, the concentration in size of the biggest private equity funds is going to be even more stark, which is again, part of why I'm, I'm writing the book now to get people to think about it. Cause you know, again, it's, there's no easy solution to this. I I'm not in favor of just banning private equity. I, there might be some people who think that's a good idea, but I, I do think they can add value, um, on average, not so sure, but in some settings, yes, like the classic way they can do some good is you take a family owned business that the second or third generation really doesn't want to control. They want to get out of the, you know, mom and dad's, um, industry. And the natural sale is either to the stock market, which is fine if the stock market's doing well, but if it's not private equity is there as an exit. And that's a, that's a good thing for the economy to have that form of, uh, of transitional ownership available. Having said that, uh, private equity can also do a lot of harm. Uh, I think particularly in sectors where uh, we count on regulation to work well, even when it's hard to write good rules. So healthcare, uh, we all 
No, we need protection from malpractice and, and, and understaffed uh, facilities and the like. I think private equity can be really dangerous in that kind of space. And so I do think a lot more attention to how they're functioning uh, in the economy is needed. And you're talking about these these huge operators. I mean, are these in effect the financial equivalent of oligopolies? Sort of. And the reason I say sort of is because I do think their concentration within the economy is very large. So as an aggregate, they control in the same way that JP Morgan did back at the beginning of the 20th century, just large numbers of companies and have uh, networks of, of knowledge reaching out into, they're, they're the biggest players on Wall Street. They pay the biggest amount of fees to investment banks, for example. So they are like core to financial capitalism. And they've grown faster than the overall economy, as you point out. Absolutely faster. Yes, much faster. They're not quite oligopolies in the following sense. They don't tend to buy the very biggest companies um, and they don't buy them if they're competing with each other. So a private equity firm would not typically be a natural candidate to buy uh, General Motors uh, and then also try to buy Ford, uh, which would really be an oligopoly of a traditional kind. Instead, they tend to buy smaller mid mid-sized companies and roll them up. And they might be creating oligopolies, but they're sort of new oligopolies within specific sectors, like, again, I allude to nursing homes or pet stores or uh, funeral homes or, you know, go, go down the list. Those kinds of things, we don't naturally think of them as where huge companies are involved. Private equity is creating bigger companies in those spaces. And uh, you you do point out right at the end of the book that every generation or two entrepreneurs come up with economies of scale to make money, that these two types of funds are where we're at today. Do you have any sense of where we're going with the next big uh, economies of scale to come? What's over the horizon? You know, I, I have to believe that the world that we generically call fintech which is this idea that somehow with internet and other kinds of technology, maybe crypto in some way, I don't know. I tend to be very suspicious of crypto because there's so much fraud in it, but, but maybe something at this intersection of finance and, and, um, and technology, most of the big established players, banks typically, they really are not very good at being entrepreneurial about competing with their own business model by using some piece of technology. So I could imagine someone coming at it with just that approach. Um, you know, there are various apps on phones that are trying to get people to use them to invest. And maybe one of those will turn out to be such a, such a hit uh, that it'll end up capturing uh, even bigger economies of scale than uh, the two kinds of funds that I'm studying in the book. But that's over the horizon. I, don't, I, I can't identify for you right here any uh, likely next big player, but it does seem to me that's probably to come. So the book is The Problem of 12, When a Few Financial Institutions Control Everything. It's written by my guest, John Coates, and published by Columbia Global Reports. Uh, but for now, John, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thanks so much for having me. I enjoyed it. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Laura Silverman, and this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. 